While you do that, let me tell you why tonight is extra special. This event is free for our members, and that is made possible through the support of the William Orville Thompson Endowment, generously funded by Athenaeum proprietor Peter Thompson, who is here with us and some of his family members tonight. Thank you, Peter. We welcome and are grateful for members' gifts of support. I've been learning about William Thompson, Peter's father, in whose honor this lecture is named. He was born in Indiana and found work as a newspaper reporter, a lumberjack, the operator of a barge and tug business, and the owner of a statistical service. He chronicled much of his life in poetry. I have one of his books right here. In the 1940s, he purchased 300 acres in Williamstown, a property with an apple orchard and a working dairy farm, which he called High Ridge Farm. In 1969, his obituary in the Boston Globe described him as a reporter, a farmer, and a poet. He was fulfilling his dream of viewing the Nile and the traces of ancient Egypt at the time of his death at age 83. This is the first volume of his poems, published in 1962, including a poem in which he describes Mother Earth as clinging precariously to her cosmic shelf. I have no doubt he would enjoy sitting here with us tonight, concerned as he was with land, water, and our precious environment. Now I am very pleased to introduce our speaker, Bob Zimmerman. During his 28-year tenure, the Charles River Watershed Association became a leading authority on the science of water in urban watersheds. It developed programs addressing stormwater pollution, a particular concern in my own neighborhood along the Mystic River. The group advocated as well for efforts to improve water quality, habitat protection and restoration, and sustainable development. Today, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency considers the Charles the cleanest urban river in the nation. Bob will speak to us about a topic of central importance to our city and its future. Some might be lulled into the notion that the real impacts of climate change will come with sea level rise sometime much later in this century. As Bob will demonstrate, the truth is that the significant changes of climate are already upon us. Yet we can act now. Bob is here to evaluate our options to mitigate and even eliminate these threats. Please join me in welcoming Bob Zimmerman for the Thompson Endowed Lecture entitled Nature's Design, Land, Water, and Climate Change in Boston. Thanks very much. I want to thank my friend Peter Thompson for uh, arranging this. Uh, I was a member of the Athenaeum for a couple of years, and I always wondered what it would be like to speak here. So I guess I get to find out this evening. Um, let's start uh, with where we are now with climate change. Uh, I won't make you read all of this, but we're going to see and are beginning to see increases in annual precipitation, heat-related uh, deaths, not here, but across the nation, uh, the beginnings of serious heat island effect, that's where the pavement heats up and all of a sudden the uh, atmosphere in downtown Boston is over 100 degrees instead of just 90 or 85. Um, 
extreme precipitation events. We're going to dwell on that a little bit. Uh, and we will begin to see in the coming 10 years to 20 years uh, the movement of populations across the nation. Remember that when it gets over 120 degrees in Phoenix, you can't fly a plane there anymore. Not enough lift. And the drought that we see in California and the fires associated with it, those aren't going away. We've hit the knee of the curve, folks. These things are going to get worse every year from now on through the rest of our lives. Um, and then, finally, uh, much of the infrastructure on which we rely, particularly for water and wastewater, uh, are 19th century um, facsimiles and uh, they're all in need of repair. I will remind you that we built Deer Island, the uh, Massachusetts Water Resources Authority uh, wastewater treatment plant in 1990. It had a 30-year lifespan. Do the arithmetic, it's not even math. And we will be spending, borrowing to uh, rebuild that facility, something on the order of two and a half billion dollars over the coming 10 to 15 years, which means your water rates are gonna go up. So let's go back to precipitation. This is a map made by the National Weather Service, uh, and it indicates what's happening with the largest 1% of storms in the United States. Uh, and you'll notice if you look in the Northeast that we've been getting hit. This is 1958 to 2012. This is not looking into the future. This is what's already happened. And another version of this, if you look in the upper right corner here, the largest 1% of storms have gained in ferocity and frequency in our neck of the woods by 71% since 1958. The next closest area in the nation is the upper Midwest at 37%. And by the way, this is not changing. This is going to continue. So though we spend a lot of ta time talking about sea level rise and storm surge, sea level rise and storm surge we talk about in terms of 2080 to uh, um, 2100. These big storms have already been happening to us. Those of you who've lived in Boston most of your lives remember in 1996 we got 11 inches uh, we got 11 inches in one day and had to cancel the head of the Charles Regatta the first time in this history. In 1998, we got six inches on one day and five inches the next day. These are all 100-year storms and flooded um, uh, the uh, Symphony Hall Green Line Station. Did $58 million worth of damage to the university's Symphony Hall, the Christian Science Center. You get the drift. When you start getting 100-year storms every seven, five to seven years on average, they're not 100-year storms anymore. And then the other thing that happens is that although we seem to get all this precipitation all at once, we then get these extended periods with no precipitation at all. Uh, and the water heats up and uh, the runoff from the land in light rain carries out to the river and we get this stuff. This is the Charles River. This stuff is uh, called in the vernacular blue-green algae. It's really a uh, photosynthetic bacteria called cyanobacteria and about 10% of its varieties are neurotoxins. 
They cause uh, Alzheimer's and ALS. They also call, cause a red uh, blood cell uh, disease called ITP, and I am not going to try to pronounce that. So there you go. You'll have to look it up when you get home. The problem is this stuff is created by phosphorus runoff, phosphates, and heat. And the combination of the two creates this problem. The problem isn't just on the Charles. You'll all recognize the Great Lakes. And if you look at the Great Lakes down by Chicago, almost the entire length of Lake Erie, uh, in any area where there's a population and shallow water, we get the cyanobacteria. Last summer, we got red tide around Florida. Water's hot and a lot of nitrates are running off. The limiting nutrient in fresh water is phosphorus. The limiting nutrient in salt water uh, is nitrates or, or uh, nitrogen. Uh, so one of the things we did in the last decade at CRWA was to try to figure out where this stuff comes from. And what we did was we divided up uh, the 308 square miles of the Charles watershed into its predominant land use types. And so this pie chart shows you the predominant land use types in the Charles watershed. And I want you to particularly take a look at the right side of this pie chart at commercial, industrial, and high-density residential properties, which represent about 20% of the total land area in that three 308 square miles. And so we tested for what properties contribute the most phosphorus. And had you asked me in 2002, when we started this study, I would have told you the grand assumption that most of the phosphorus comes from septic systems and fertilizers and soaps. And what do we hear now when we talk about phosphorus-laden Lake Champlain or the Great Lakes? The same thing. It's agricultural-based and it's septic system-based. The great thing about science is you get to find out when you're dead wrong. This is the contribution uh, by land use type of phosphorus to the Charles River. And if you look on the right side of the pie chart, commercial, industrial, and high-density residential properties represent 50%. It's actually a little over 50% of the total load in the river. Oh, and by the way, the total load in the river is 2.14 times as much as the river can handle. So every weed and every cyanobacteria little follicle that wants to grow out there has plenty of nutrient to get the job done. Okay, so I got a little quiz for you. What do commercial, industrial, and high-density residential properties have in common? Large parking lots. And what parks on large parking lots? And did you know that three-tenths of 1% to 1.1% of a gallon of gasoline is phosphorus, phosphates? Because it's used in the refinement of the gasoline. And when your engine is cold, when you fire it up, it 
drops more pollution in that first five minutes or so than it will in the next 100,000 miles. Check this out on the EPA because the catalytic converter isn't warm. Hmm. Because we couldn't figure out where all that phosphorus came from. Nobody that I know fertilizes his parking lot. Uh, and one of the things that I wanted to uh, show you here with this next slide, so keep this in mind, we're going to come back to the, these little facts too. This is back to uh, the slide of the Great Lakes, and you'll remember where the green was. Actually, we'll go back and look. So think about all of Lake Erie, um, uh, Saginaw Bay, down in the southern end there, Chicago. Here's uh, Green Bay, Thunder Bay. Duluth, you get the drift here, okay? And everybody out there is telling me all the time that this is an agricultural problem. Remember where the green was? And look at the extent of Chicago and Milwaukee, Detroit and Windsor, Canada, Ontario, Cleveland and Akron, Toledo, Ohio, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Duluth, Minnesota. You catch my drift here? I'll bet you there's a lot of parking lots there. And I bet you we better take a look at them. One of the things that I learned in my nearly three decades at uh, CRWA with our science is if you assume that this is the problem and you don't go out and do the work, you're likely to spend billions of dollars on something that won't work. We need to take the time to assess and then invest appropriately. So let's bring all of this knowledge back to the city of Boston. One of the things we started doing when um, we hired uh, Pallavi Kaliamande, who's uh, here with us this evening, is to start to look at how the city of Boston was built over time. Uh, and one of the things we discovered is that we were very good at making tributaries to the Charles River go away. They were in the way, let's get them out of the way. So the tributaries here in red are tributaries that are in culverts. Culvert has a finite size, you know, think about it for a minute so that we could build across the top. And what's not shown here, there are four, three streams uh, in the new Harvard campus area where the B school is and in the new area they just uh, um, acquired that we not only made go away, we destroyed them. We bulldozed them into submission. And there are a number of streams that we've done exactly the same t thing to throughout the city. Now think about it for a minute. You're a drop of water raindrop and you want to fall out of the sky and your whole life is to find something nice and soft and green to land on and then to migrate over to a tributary, get into the Charles River, flow down to the ocean, you know, it's kind of a nice life. Where do you do that in Boston? And what do you do when the tributary isn't there in the, anymore? you hang around. And when you hang around and you collect with your buddies, you get floods 
One of the interesting conversations we had a long time ago with uh, Harvard University when it was first looking at its master plan for the new campus was their complaint that Soldier Field and the surrounding athletic fields flood all the damn time. So we went back and looked, and Pallavi did the work. And when you make three streams go away, we can tell you why you flood all the time. So one of the things we started doing was to start to think about the city flooding, drought, heat island effect, the future. This is Northeastern's campus. One of those culverted streams goes right through here, and it looks currently like this. But it could look like this. Which is better for floods? Particularly if, as we shape this stream, we take into consideration how much storage we could get with, uh, within the banks. You following me here? Or the other thing. When we bulldoze a stream into submission, it's not like the soils that made the stream exist in the first place went away. They're all still there. This entire natural system, the hydrogeology, is all still down there. And if we think and we begin to recreate our streetscapes, we can take this, make it look like this, Reconnect rainwater to the soils, to the groundwater, back to the stream, and in the process, begin to build real resilience to both drought and flooding, and to reduce the impacts of heat island effect by introducing trees and evapotranspiration. That's why forests are so cool. Water is constantly evaporating. That's why you sweat to cool yourself down. Unfortunately, the way we do this is to rip up a big parking lot, put in expensive, these are called Cultec systems, that allow us to store water from the parking lot, and then we bury this all again, and we put the parking lot back over the top, and we miss all of that nature, that hydrogeology, that opportunity, and this costs anywhere from $100,000 an acre to $300,000 an acre. It's not exactly cheap. So when we start talking in Boston about capturing stormwater and using it to reestablish hydro, uh, natural hydrogeology, all the developers get up in arms because they think they're going to have to build this kind of thing. Pretty pricey. And yet there may be another way out of this box. One of the things we, we thought about at CRWA, while we were figuring out that we were making all the streams go away, and wouldn't it be nice to make them come back and to reestablish that relationship between soil and rainwater and surface waters, is what if we created a market where the guy that owns the big parking lot for whom it will cost, you know, whatever bazillion dollars to fix that parking lot and store water underneath it, what if we give that guy the opportunity to buy credits 
to incentivize either public or private property to build facilities that will take water and put it into the land that likes water. So sand, sand and gravel, sandy loams, as opposed to ledge, glacial till, clay. You with me here? It's a lot cheaper to build on those soils that like water than it is to build on those soils that don't. And in the process of creating incentives, what we do is we begin to recreate the nature that we destroyed so that we get this sort of thing. People on decent soils with a little bit of space sell credits and for a lot less money go out and build these kinds of facilities that introduce water back to the ground. That water gets into the hydrogeologic process. Groundwater goes over to the restored stream, creates flow, uh, and does all of those wonderful things. And oh, by the way, think about the open space that comes with it. The kinds of things that attract us to Boston Common or the Public Garden. There's a reason we end up in those places. If you do that, there's actually a substantial savings. If you put water back in the ground in the places that nature put water back in the ground to begin with, you save a lot of money from sort of willy-nilly requiring us to put the water back in the ground everywhere all at once. And it looks kind of like this down here. On a per acre basis, we can save as much as 41000 to 200 and $62,000 per acre, depending on the construction on that acre. So there's a financial incentive here, if we take the time to look. This is Wydat Circle, or Widat Circle. I've heard it pronounced about a thousand different ways. I call it Wydat Circle. Uh, I hope you've read something about it over the last year. Um, I wrote a, uh, an editorial with uh, Elizabeth Henry from uh, uh, the uh, Environmental League of Massachusetts about this area uh, last January. And on the day that the editorial came out, this area was underwater. There was a king tide with a nor'easter, and there were dumpsters floating down Congress Street. I'm sure many of you probably remember that. And hopefully none of you had a, uh, a car in the tow lot here because they all had salt, salt water damage. I'm not sure whether the city has resolved that issue yet as to who's to blame for the damage to the cars. Okay. Anyway, Wydet Circle is one of the lowest places in the city of Boston. And the reason is, uh, I want to come back to that one, we'll go to this one. This is what it looked like in the 30s. This is what it looks like now. Um, Fort Point Channel, as late as 1968, was two-thirds longer than it currently is. So it kind of got in the way of uh, the Bayside Expo and those kinds of things, and uh, we just made it go away with all of the consequent problems. 
So the area is now subject to serious flooding. Uh, the other thing that I will introduce to you is that the pink areas are um, areas of uh, low-income housing. And the blue there indicates their likelihood uh, of flooding in just, you know, big storms, not sea level rise. So the question right now is what are we going to do with what that circle? Should we uh, surplus uh, the land there and sell it off and build housing there? Hmm. So if you build housing there, is this like full employment for the National Guard to go out and save people during those big storms? You know, when they drive in with those big trucks with the big wheels and stuff? Or you, do you do something like this? Do we actually begin to anticipate what's already here? and begin to set these places aside and develop them in ways that will protect the rest of the city. So think of this as that wetland. Uh, there's a river here we discovered called the Bass River. And if we uh, fully restore it, we can protect well into the northeastern campus uh, and uh, well out into South Boston. Besides which, this begins to restore nature. We're be actually beginning to think big enough where we might have a material influence on what we know is going to hit us. And if we thought even a little bigger, we could set aside two or 300 acres and protect someplace between 1,000 and 2,000 acres. We can also introduce things like pumps in that Bass River during um, uh, serious storm events to help convey water out of the city and into the ocean. By the way, folks, right now, we worry a lot about sea level rise and storm surge. But you, did you know that in, in Boston Harbor, because of Winthrop, the Winthrop Peninsula and the uh, Boston Harbor Islands, the largest storm surge that we'll see is about two feet. Not the 11 feet that you hear, you know, hit Long Island Sound uh, during Hurricane Sandy or shut down the southern end of Manhattan and Newark. Because we're protected, because the wind doesn't have the long reach to be able to build that kind of tide, we only have to protect for the coming two or three generations to about two to three feet. Our big concern is precipitation. We are going to get 12 inches in three hours, 20 inches in 24 hours. And none of the systems on which we rely are capable of handling that. And when it hits, large areas are going to flood. Do you remember there was a uh, rainstorm that hit Columbia, North Carolina, maybe five years ago? An agency in town I won't name, because this is a secret, so we all are going to get in on the secret, modeled what would happen to Boston if we got hit by that storm, which is certainly possible, remember the first couple maps I showed you. If we got hit by that storm, four universities, each one of you has heard of, 
Northeastern, Boston University, Harvard University, and MIT would go down for at least two years, maybe three, very much like what happened to, to Tulane uh, after uh, Hurricane Katrina. The economic impact on the city of Boston alone would last for at least 10 years. And there's no guarantee, because that remember that 71%? That creeps up every year. There's no guarantee that during that 10-year period we don't get hit again. And what was it you said we were doing to prepare for this? <laughs> we got a lot of work to do, folks. And everybody in the room is necessary to start to beat the drum. Emily Norton, my successor at CRWA, the executive director, new executive director, is here tonight. She started a program to try to get the city to seriously look at Wydat Circle and to seriously think about the things we can do. By the way, industrial economics looked at Wydat Circle for us and determined that the tax revenues to the city would be about the same regardless as to whether they built residences there or they turned it into a wetland because the surrounding property becomes more valuable. It's protected against flooding. Uh, it has this wonderful open space amenity that comes in. Same sort of thing that happens on the Rose Kennedy Greenway or on the um, Emerald Necklace or along the Charles. If there's one thing that the city of Boston should know, because we paid for it, cleaning up surface water bodies has enormous economic impact. How many here think that if the harbor still looked like it did in 1993 or 1994 or 1995, legal seafoods would be building a three-story structure directly on it? Not happening. We need to start to think differently. Okay, let's go back to thinking about Deer Island and spending two and a half billion dollars to fix that facility. And remember that Deer Island takes 300 million gallons a day, treats it, and then throws it away nine and a half miles out into the middle of Massachusetts Bay, just north of Stellwagen Bank. Okay? And well, you know, that's wastewater. It's kind of, ooh, uh, who wants to deal with that? It's a bad thing. Well, yeah, sort of. About half that 300 million gallons is wastewater. The other half is otherwise potable water leaking into the pipes that collect all that wastewater because the pressure in the ground is so much higher than the pressure inside the pipe. Water can only flow a foot to a foot and a half a day through the ground. It can flow tens of miles once it gets inside that pipe. So remember, we started building those pipes in 1854. You think they might have a few leaks in them? Many of the interceptors in downtown Boston are made out of brick. The mortar kind of falls out, you know what I'm saying? 
So we're throwing away 150 million gallons of water a day that belongs in the Mystic, the Charles, the Neponset, the Four River, as if it weren't important. This came to us at CRWA around 2000, 1999-2000. We started to think about, well, how do you abandon Deer Island? That's impossible. It costs $4 billion. And then along about 2009-2010, we started talking about this. What if we break up the wastewater into small units, say someplace between 1 million and 5 million gallons a day, and we mine it. So here's the sewer pipe. We're not building any new pipes. We're mining the existing infrastructure. We take the water out, say 2 million gallons in this particular spot. We run it through what's called a membrane bioreactor, which treats the water to drinking water standards. Now, you can't drink it because regulation says you can't drink what used to be black water in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which is fine. Okay, And then we take what's left. My dad was a chemist. you know. So when we think of wastewater, we think of goo. My dad would think of organics and water. Okay, So I want you to start to think in the same way. Organics and water. We separate the organics and we mix those organics with other organics and food waste. And we put them in an anaerobic digester where the little bugs eat away at the bad stuff in the organics, and they turn it into methane. Methane is 96% the same thing as natural gas. And so you burn that natural gas to spin a turbine and generate electricity. 50% of it is used parasitically to operate the plant. The other 50% is available for sale. Once you're done with the membrane bioreactor, you have treated effluent. Now it turns out, how many here know what uh, geothermal energy is? Oh good, I don't have to spend a lot of time explaining. So geothermal energy is I pump groundwater into my home, I run it through a heat pump, which is basically a uh, glorified compressor. Uh, and I either make it hotter or cooler, depending on what I want in my house right now, whether I want it cooler or hotter, okay? Groundwater comes into your home at about 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Wastewater goes into a wastewater treatment plant at 65 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. You with me here? Two million gallons with twice the energy in it of groundwater. So if I use that to heat and cool surrounding buildings, the surrounding buildings no longer have to burn fracked natural gas and create all of that CO2. So let's see, I have two utilities now, right? I have electricity, no, three. I have electricity, I have treated effluent, which I'm gonna use for thermal energy, so there's the second. The third is the treated effluent itself, I can sell for process and cooling water. I can sell it for irrigation. I can sell it for every use that we have except bathing and drinking. And then I can reserve a portion of it up here to put back into the ground to restore the natural hydrologic cycle 
that we've damaged. So remember our st restored streams? They're going to need a source for what's called base flow. When it gets real dry out, to make that stream continue to move. So you reserve an amount of the water um, captured for base flow. So we did the numbers on this. Oh, by the way, here is uh, one of the plants. These are all contained inside a building. They don't stink, key, particularly if they ha you happen to live next door to one or across the street from one. Uh, and here is a restored stream. This is also in the uh, Seaport District, uh, which helps with flooding and uh, helps with uh, heat island effect, but also helps us restore natural hydrology. The closer we get to the way nature has done things in the last four and a half, what is it, uh, four and a half billion years, could be nature knows better how to do this the better off we're all going to be in being able to handle tremendous volumes of water or no water at all. All right, so the numbers here. This is also from industrial economics. Uh, these are uh, the income from everything but wastewater, actually charging for the treatment of wastewater. This is six and a half, seven million dollars on two million gallons um, a day, that's uh, six and a half to seven million dollars annually. It more than doubles the income for the wastewater treatment plant. It makes treating wastewater a profitable undertaking. So if you bought the wastewater from the MWRA as an asset at say 80 cents on the dollar of what they would otherwise charge, and you get to charge 20 cents, and then you add these income sources. You can pay this facility off. It costs $46.7 million, as I recall, for 2 million gallons a day in seven years or less. Okay. Uh, I'm going to come back to that. So here's the whole sewerage area for the MWRA, all 43 communities. Big area. And if we were to use quirks, we call these things community water and energy resource centers, our distributed wastewater treatment plants. So C-W-E-R-C, quirk. Clever, huh? Took us two and a half weeks to figure that one out. Um, you need someplace between 100 and 120 of them across uh, the 43 communities to handle all of the water. You would restore natural hydrology. You would fully restore the Charles River. I'm not talking about close anymore. I'm talking about a full restoration. Historic flow, cool the water down, reduce the uh, phosphates and the uh, activations of cyanobacteria. Oh! And I want you to look at these numbers. This is the social welfare benefit, okay? Let's go down this a little. Energy recovery, electricity. We have 100 to 120 of these plants generating something like 1,000 megawatts in total. Eliminating the need for frack gas from Pennsylvania in a six to eight billion dollar pipeline. 
That's a serious savings, folks, that we are otherwise going to have to pay for. Energy recovery, emissions reduction, avoided stormwater, best management practice costs, uh, property value enhancements on an annual basis. Uh, take out this, except for those of you who live on the toe of Beacon Hill or in uh, the Back Bay or in the South End where you have to worry about your pilings being exposed because once they start to rot, it's going to cost you anywhere from a half a million dollars to two million dollars to replace them. Portion of this water that we're reclaiming going back into the ground obviates the need for that sort of thing. And you would save these kinds of numbers on an annual basis. Anyway, the grand total down here of all of these things, social welfare, all of us are involved, are totals of $400 million to $1.2 billion annually. This isn't over time, this is annual benefits to all of us that live in those 43 communities. I have your attention, that's really good. So we wrote a little book about this work. Uh, this work was done between 2013 and 2016. Uh, and it's, it reads like a graduate thesis. It's a great thing to read, uh, particularly when you want to go to sleep at night. Uh, but it's short. It's about 100 pages, and about half that is uh, graphics and pictures. Uh, I recommend it to you. What I truly recommend to you is that you, if you're not members of Charles River Watershed Association, which is the only organization in the region that's doing this kind of work, I recommend that you become members of CRWA. I'm no longer the executive director, but I'm a member. This work is essential. What I'm trying to tell you folks is I honestly believe there's a way out of the box that we've created for ourselves. But it does not lie along replacing, rebuilding, and expanding the systems that we inherited from 1854. It's going to require all of us to think quite differently about what Boston is, what it can look like, and how we respond. And I will leave you with this. We need to start right now. Thank you.